This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by Rollbar.com. If you need error and exception tracking in your application, check out Rollbar.com. They have a great UI and terrific tools for helping you track down the problems in your application and getting it back up and running as quickly as possible. You can find them at Rollbar.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 258 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Coraline Ada Emke. I knew you'd be here today. David Brady. Today on a very special Ruby Rogues, one panelist will not finish. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Tennessee. We have a new permanent panelist, Sam Livingston Gray. Well, how did I get here? I think there was an email involved. Uh, I'm Charles. Oh, you're Ma- right. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Greg Bogus. Hello, everyone. It's uh, very, very happy to be back again. Thank you. I know it's been quite a while. I think the last episode you were on was the depression episode, if I remember right. Yeah, that's right. It was just about two years ago. And it was, it's been one of the episodes I think I've heard the most about from listeners. When I meet them, several people would come up to me and basically say, I don't know who that guy was, but I didn't realize how bad off I was until I heard it and then talked to somebody. So, you know, it's, it, it's made a difference, I think, for a lot of people. That's, that's really cool to hear. I really appreciate y'all giving me the opportunity to come talk about that stuff. Yep. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Did you have been on for a while? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Greg Bogus. I uh, serve on the developer evangelism team at Twilio. Twilio is based mostly in San Francisco, but I am in Chicago. Um, and uh, yeah, so for those who didn't hear it a couple years ago, you may have heard my name from a talk I gave called Developers in Depression. I've been doing that for a couple years in the primarily in the Ruby community and then have a uh, newsletter that I send out occasionally with links and resources on the topic at devsindepression.com. Cool. Well, we brought you on today to talk about Twilio. So do you want to kind of give people a brief overview of what is offered by Twilio? Because I think some people kind of get the idea of phone, but they don't really take it much further than that. Yeah, for sure. Um, Most practically speaking, what Twilio can do for a Ruby developer is within about 10 minutes of signing up for an account, you can send and receive a text message and place and receive a phone call uh, in less than 10 lines of Ruby. Um, So... It really, truly does feel like magic. It's an API that can make your phone ring. And Twilio has been around for about eight years now. Um, and generally speaking, their goal is to bridge the gap between developers and the 150-year-old telecommunications industry. At least that's where we started. We've been doing some cool stuff in the last couple of years uh, around IP messaging and video chat, but most folks probably know us because of the phone stuff. And, you know, the telecom system, you know, it used to be, say, like 10 years ago, if you wanted to send or receive a text message or, or make a phone call, you'd probably have to start by hiring a lawyer and then negotiating with all the major carriers and then running That's line. That's what I do for office. every one of my projects. I always start <laughs> with the lawyer. You probably don't need Twilio then. You'll be right at home there. 
And so, and they basically have just taken, done a lot of that groundwork and give you an API to interact with the telephone network. And then just in the last year, we've been offering IP messaging or chat. It's cross-platform uh, and then also video chat as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the thing that I've played with the most is the text messages. Mm-hmm. I've played a little bit with phone numbers and phone calls. I think text messages is probably the most gratifying way to get started. I think generally speaking, developers don't like talking on the phone and being able to programmatically send text messages and to receive text messages is a ton of fun. And then once you realize, once you realize you can do that, it tends to open up a whole bunch of fun hacks that you can throw together in an afternoon along with a whole bunch of interesting business cases. Yeah, I think I built an app at one point using Twilio that basically you could text in and then it would text you back and ask for your email address. And then it would sign you up to get the emails that we send out every week where you can get the podcast episodes. And of course, it's out there and it's launched. And if you have the number and the the little keyword you can text in, you can actually make it work. But I haven't published it and it has some bugs in it. So that's part of the reason. But it did work, at least on my phone. So. I think you're probably not the only one with a, a few unfinished uh, proof of concept <laughs> Twilio apps living in their account. Yeah. So, Greg, I am necessarily pretty security minded. And um, I recently went through the crash override. So you're about to be doxxed, of course, and um, enable two-factor authentication on absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. So Twilio can be used. That's one of the use cases for Twilio, right, is um, setting up two-factor authentication. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, there's kind of a, a cool story there. So we realized a couple years ago that a huge chunk of our customers were signing up for SMS so that they could implement two-factor authentication. And, you know, from cursory glance, it should be pretty easy, right? Like generate a random six-digit code, fire off a text message, you know, listen for a text message to come back, check to see if it matches up. And then if it does, sign them in. In practicality, it is way more complicated than that. You have to worry about encryption. You have to worry about, like, is that code you're generating really secure? You have to worry about, can that code be brute forced? Uh, you have to worry about what happens if uh, your user doesn't have access to their phone or doesn't have access to the cellular network. There was a customer of ours that had started building a solution for this and basically wanted to be the Twilio for two-factor authentication. So the idea being... Developers don't want to do this all this other crap. They just want to get back to building the features that are unique to their application. Um, and so Authy started building these APIs for two-factor authentication. And last year, uh, we acquired them and kind of joined forces. So their team is under the Twilio banner. And that's what I've been speaking on the most in the Ruby community over the last year. And the talk I give, we'll do a, a live coding demo. We'll start with a uh, a Rails app that just has basic authentication, email, password, and then integrate two-factor authentication into it using Authy. Um, and it really just takes three API calls. There's one to register a user, one to send the token, and then one to verify the token. And then Authy also works. There's an iOS app, an Android app. There's a Chrome app there. You know, Then it also works over SMS. So it just covers a ton of the basis and you know, so that you can implement two-factor authentication, have confidence that it's done securely, and then have confidence that's going to be updated as security vulnerabilities come out and then get back to doing the things that you do. Yeah, I think I went to a Rails comp talk where you talked about this. Oh, yeah. Was, last uh, year. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, what, yeah, so it was not 2015. Yeah, 2014 in Atlanta, right? Yep. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, if you want to learn more about it, it's authy.com, A-U-T-H-Y.com. You can also find it via the Twilio.com homepage. So they did become the Authy of, Two-factor authentication. 
the the Twilio two-factor authentication, yeah, they um, and that's worked out super super well for us, you know, um, because inherently part of communication, most of the time when you're communicating, you want to have some degree of confidence who you're communicating with, right? And so so that verifying identity fits really nicely into Twilio's mission of just fueling the future of, of communications there. Well, especially where the web is so anonymous and yeah. also where a lot of this stuff is mostly automated. So authentication, for example, it's automated in the sense that there's not a person on the other end flipping through a book to make sure that your username and password line up. And right. so by having two-factor authentication, it's nice to just verify for your financial app or your privacy-minded communications app that the person who's getting in and getting access is the person who should be getting in and getting access. You know, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't have two-factor auth enabled on at least your email account, just hit pause and go do that, right? Like, because if you're like me, if you get access to my Gmail account, you pretty much own my life. Everything is routed through there. And then, like Coraline said, start going through, starting with banks, starting with everywhere else, and just enabling it everywhere. Because how most of these huge... Uh, hacks happen. And I think I just read this morning that Minecraft leaked 7 million user details, uh, you know, through another vulnerability. I mean, it's like every single week, someone else is getting crushed by this stuff. And Slack got hit last year. And then the blog post that they released saying, announcing the vulnerability, I think the title was something like, on our security instant and two-factor authorization is now enabled. Um, and so it's like there wasn't even a comma between something bad happened to us and the way we're solving this problem with two-factor authentication. And so as developers, I think we're probably rapidly getting to the point where two-factor auth is just considered the best practice. And, you know, we need to protect our users in such a way so that if, you know, their stuff gets compromised on another site, because most users, to be honest, are, are just using, they probably have what, like four passwords, maybe three passwords, maybe one password. And that's typically how these these hacks happen is some site somewhere gets compromised. Now you have a list of 7 million email addresses and, and passwords, and now it's just a for loop. And they're just running through, trying out all the different sites. Um, and if you have two-factor auth enabled, it's going to eliminate 99.9% .9 of those attacks. Yep. The other end of this, and you kind of alluded to it, but I want to be very clear about it, is the email. If I have access to your email address, then I can go to Stripe or your bank and I can say, oh, I forgot my password. I log into your email account because it's going to email me a link to reset it. I can go reset it to whatever I want so I can get in. And then I just delete the email so you never see it. Mm -hmm. And so by having this on those areas where it's, you know, it's kind of access to everything else, you definitely want it there. There is a fantastic article by a guy named Matt Honan. It's in Wired. It's from a couple years ago. And the title of it is How Apple and Amazon Security Flaws Led to My Epic Hacking. So this was from 2012. And so the, the security flaws have since been fixed. But the let me I'm just going to read it short. He does a better job saying this than, than I could summarize it. And um, so this is just about just a few sentences of text here. But I, I think the magnitude of this attack is, is pretty amazing. So he says, at 4.50 p.m., a password reset confirmation arrived in my inbox. Uh, I don't really use my me.com email. I rarely check it. Even if I did, I might not have noticed the message because hackers immediately sent it to trash. They then followed the link in that email to permanently reset my Apple ID password. 
At 4.52, a Gmail password recovery email arrived at myme.com. Two minutes later, another email arrived notifying me that my Gmail account password had changed. At 5.02, they reset my Twitter password. At 5 o'clock, they used iCloud's Find My tool to remotely wipe my iPhone. At 5.01, they remotely wiped my iPad. At 5.05, they remotely wiped my MacBook. Around the same time, they wow. deleted my Google account. At 5.10, I placed the call to AppleCare. At 5.12, the hackers posted a message to my Twitter account taking credit for the hack. And this happened to him solely because his Twitter handle was M-A-T. And these hackers on the other side of the planet thought it would be cool to own that Twitter account. Oh, wow. The uh, best part of this is, well, so he gets, well, let me tell you a couple of things. One, on that hard drive were all the pictures of his baby. So and I think he had a one-year-old daughter. And they were not backed up to the cloud. And so he would have lost all those. He was able to get all the data back from his hard drive by paying thousands of dollars to one of these data recovery services. But what he found out is that they use social engineering. Like they called up Amazon and were able to add a credit card to his Amazon account without authorizing himself. Because what harm could that possibly do? Call back, use the last four digits of that card they had just added as a way of verifying their identity to get their Amazon password reset. Once he logged into there, he could see the last four digits of all of their credit cards. Then he could use the last four digits there with Apple to regain access to his account there and then use the Apple, which was the backup email address for his Gmail to do a Gmail reset. And all this happened in 10 minutes and they barely had to touch a keyboard and certainly needed no programming knowledge to make this work. That's pretty amazing. You made a comment a, a little bit earlier about how uh, a lot of developers, like they just want to ship features. They don't want to deal with this uh, security implementation stuff. And I'm definitely in that camp. But I think that there are some people in this industry who like that's a really appealing thing. Or maybe there are developers who are newer in their career and they might not understand why implementing your own security isn't such a hot idea. Do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah, to the extent that I can, because I am... I am not one of those folks, right? And so I'm sure that you're going to have folks listening to this who are, are way better on the cryptography and security side uh, than I am. But I certainly fall more under the category of folks who just want to get back to shipping features and like sleep well at night. But let's start. I think most people who have been doing programming for a while uh, understand that it's hard to generate truly random numbers. And so if you think about a six-digit code, you know, how do you know for sure the best six-digit code is truly random and that the pattern that you're using there can't be guessed. I think there's also, maybe even if, you know, there's just attack vectors that you might not even consider if you don't do this stuff professionally, right? So for instance, I mentioned earlier, can you brute force this thing? Like sure, you can send over a six-digit code, but are you also building in the functionality to make sure that this gets reset? Is that token, does it expire after a certain amount of time? There's also... Benefits that you get from using a service that deploys this across thousands of sites because you can see and identify common attack vectors. So if you see a ton of traffic hitting one of your customers and say entering the code wrong a bunch of times, when that traffic starts hitting another one of your customers, then another one of Authy's customers, then Authy can say, hey, this is probably a malicious attack because it's coming from similar bank of IP addresses. You don't get that same safety of, you know, running with the herd that you do if you're just deploying and monitoring 
your own stuff. And then I also think there's just the practical aspects of, you know, back when I was working at a consulting company, we would deploy a feature to the client, get a check, like, okay, that feature's deployed, and then we move on to the next thing. There's not always budget or time for maintenance when the new attack vectors or when, you know, what is it, like every few weeks, it seems like we're finding a new vulnerability in OpenSSL or in, you know, in Ruby or whatever it is, you know, and so do you have the bandwidth and the attention span to stay on top of all those and to be going back and, and fixing all of those security issues as they pop up? So I think even if you have the the knowledge and the technical expertise, which I don't, you might not have the time or bandwidth to stay vigilant about it. That's a good point. And so I guess Authy is like a an overall good solution for that sort of thing for the reasons you mentioned. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what they do. I mean, we do have a bunch of those, you know, the engineers that you mentioned that, uh, that Sam mentioned there that they care about this stuff and really nerd out on it. We've got a bunch of engineers who work there who do that. And this is all they do, right? Like they're, they're not shipping additional features for other things like their job is to stay abreast of all the security stuff that's going on and to make sure Aussie stays safe for the thousands of customers that are using it. So I'd like to make a general plea to the developers who are listening. If you are collecting any kind of personal information whatsoever from your users, please enable 2FA. And if Authy makes it easier for you, please use that because you cannot underestimate the damage that can be done even if someone gets an address, um, even if someone gets a phone number. So, you know, please, please put it in place. Think about your users. I, I think it's interesting that you bring this up, Coraline, uh, you know, with your plea, just because I think a lot of us, you know, we're going to get into this discussion of privilege here for a minute, but a lot of us just don't think about it because, you know, nobody's trying to hack my account and I don't have to deal with a whole lot of, you know, garbage on the internet, but there are people that do. And because there are people that do, I mean, you talked about, you know, what to do if you get doxxed and, you know, there are people out there that have a legitimate concern about this kind of thing because it's scary. And, well, it's wrong, and we I think we can all agree on that. But, you know, so by not thinking about it because, gee, I don't have this problem, or, you know, I'm not going to think about it because who does that ever happen to? You know, you need to get it in your head. This does happen to people, and it can lead to real harm for people. And so when we're talking about this, we're talking about real-life scenarios with real people who we've probably heard or talked to. And... That's why we need this is so that we can protect those people. It's not just so that we can protect somebody's blog on the Internet that their mom and their sister reads. But it's because, as was illustrated with the article that Greg pointed out, people can actually get this information and take the next step to hijack somebody's email address, to hijack their Twitter account, get their other personal information, you know, maybe publish where they live uh, how to find them, you know, tell people, oh, this person deserves to have these horrible things happen to them. And who knows? I mean, it, it, it gets really, really dicey really quickly. Yeah, it's a pretty scary situation. And I think that highlights the importance, too, for having diverse teams, having people who have different experiences from the more privileged developers, because people simply don't think of these things because it's not on their radar at all. So it's not malice. It's just like not really understanding the issues at all. So Yeah, there's a I would add an interesting cross it's just kind of dogpiling on this a little bit. I work at Cover My Meds and we do healthcare and we have PHI and PII and we had security training and they sat us down and they said, just so you guys know, we're handling the most lucrative target on the internet. Credit cards information sell for about a dollar a pop, but PII or PHI is 10 bucks. 
PHI uh, is personal health care information. Correct? Yeah, per, I'm sorry. Yeah, personal health information. PII is personally personally identifiable information. Mm-hmm. And so if you've got a we, we handle prior authorization for insurance. So we've got your name and address and a medical procedure that you had or, or a prescription that you're trying to get filled. So we've kind of got the, the Venn diagram of, of vulnerability there. The comment I would make about just just do something with your security, Greg, you made a comment about you gain the advantage of kind of running with the herd. And I think a lot of security people, and, and at Cover My Meds, we've got a just a fantastic security team. They 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 really our, our ops and infrastructure dev team. They they take this stuff really really seriously, which can get lead to some intense interactions because uh, I'm on the <laughs> developer side because my job as a developer <laughs> is to introduce vulnerabilities, and um, I actually really like having these guys there acting as my unrelenting conscience. And what I will say is there's a there's a counterintuitive thing that you think well if I'm running with the pack I'm also I'm swimming with the same tank of fish in this barrel, right? Authy is now a very big target. If we can compromise Authy, we look at all these, you know, we can take out the whole herd kind of thing. And that's a valid concern. So if you decide that you want to dedicate a team to, to your security, that's okay. But please, whatever you do, don't decide you're going to do your own security and then download a package and just install it and then forget about your security because now – you have the worst of both worlds. You are neither swimming with the, you're, you're neither, you're not, sw- you're not running with the herd, but you're also not avoiding the, I'm in the tank of, of a barrel of fish, right? If you install WordPress and you look at your logs, you're going to see just script kitties running known exploits over and over and over against every WordPress blog, you know, out there. And if you're not keeping WordPress up to date, you're in the same barrel. And if you're running your own WordPress site, you're not running with the herd. Developers have this, we have this, um, this thing that we do where we're like, oh, that's a hard problem. I better think about that for half a day and come up with my own solution. And I mm-hmm. see this, this time and time again. And security is one of those areas. It's just like, oh, I read a couple of blog posts on security and I'm going to write my own encryption algorithm now. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. just, just stop right there and rely on and trust people who do this for a living. Yeah. Not, not only is security through obscurity not uh, any kind of security, but if you try to roll your own, this is a very thoroughly well-studied area. And if you try to roll your own, you are going to make one of five really common mistakes that are known. Like if you try to roll your own, you are going to make a mistake that they are expecting you to make. So yeah, just don't do it, kids. Just don't do it. Well, the other thing to keep in mind, and this is something that goes back to the idea of we're all in the same barrel. And that is, is that if there is a leak in the barrel, you know, or if somebody finds a way to actually fire into the barrel, so to speak, you know, there are people out there, you know, who are part of Authy. I'm, I'm, ass- I'm making an assumption here, but I think I'm safe in the assumption. They have a staff of people because so many people are using Authy that will actually, they're keeping up on the latest exploits for the web. They're yes. keeping up on the latest exploits for the different ways of implementing two-factor authentication. And so if you're building your own, then you're taking on all of that responsibility and it's nearly impossible to keep up with the state of the art of hacking systems like this. But if there's a team of people that are dedicated to it, sure, there may be an exploit where somebody actually gets past the gate, but those people are going to be much more involved in keeping track of that stuff and will plug it much more quickly than you can. Mm -hmm. I think it's reasonable to say that if you are a hobbyist Ruby developer, you're going to have a hard time competing with someone who's a developer or full-time 
at the same way, the folks who are trying to exploit these vulnerabilities do that full time. Mm-hmm. Like they do that, like it's their mm-hmm. job. So if you're trying to do all the other stuff you do, plus also kind of in your spare time, keep up to date with security, you're going to lose. There was a um, startup here in Chicago that I was interacting with a little bit, or I knew the people, some of the people involved. And they were a team of junior developers that had just come out of like, out of a boot camp. And they're like, Oh, we have this great idea for an app. And it involved interacting with government databases and they were storing social security numbers. Not only did they not have 2FA, but they weren't even using encryption on the SSNs. So this is the kind of of like anything we can do to make it super just drop dead simple for people with little to no experience to enhancing the security of their applications. I'm all for it. We had Dan Liu on a couple of months ago, and I love his article about the, the normalization of deviance, how broken practices become san- uh, standard yeah, in software. Yeah, that was a great episode. And yep. there's a line in there that, that, that I, I sadly, I missed recording that episode, but and I'm totally kicking myself for it. But the the article has one line in it that turned my blood to ice, where he basically says, if you will not listen to these early signals, and by early signals, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't have 2FA and we're telling you to get 2FA, this is one of those early, low amplitude leading signals that you need to be listening to. If you don't listen to these early leading signals, then you will learn this lesson by getting hacked. That's the only other way to learn. So, you know, you can pay me now or you can pay with your company down the road. And if you are under pressure to be delivering features, maybe you're at a startup, think about the um, economic cost of causing your entire customer base to lose faith in you and lose confidence in your in your product. Or think that's, about the economic or the economic cost of a lawsuit. Yeah, it's, it's not uncommon for the people who build these things to get sued when they mm-hmm. leak information, and especially when you're talking about HIPAA. Yeah, the, the health government fines for HIPAA are huge, and they're per violation. Yep. Yeah. The, I, the government is motivated. If you look, I I had to read through the entire law of HIPAA a couple of years ago to work with a client, and if you read through the HIPAA laws, there's a lot of stuff in there that says our job is not to put you out of business. Our job is not to stop day to day operations, which is why they have the weird thing like please, you know, at the pharmacy they say please stand here for privacy. They they implemented that because there was no way to prevent people from overhearing uh the pharmacist talking to the client, that kind of thing. And HIPAA said, we're not going to stop you from being a pharmacy. We're not going to stop you from working. But if you then go on to read the rest of HIPAA, it's very clear that what they're saying is when they, when they start handing down a hundred thousand dollars per incident or ten thousand or ten thousand dollars per record of leaked information. And usually if you're going to leak information, you're going to leak all of it, right? So, you know, you leak 10,000 records. Congratulations. You just, ha- you just burned a hundred million dollars in fines. And the legalese is very clearly worded to say, if you are a big company like GM and it's going to take you three months to get, uh, you know, to rectify a PHI or PII problem, we're going to give you fines starting at day 60 or at day 30 that are like a million dollars a day. And if you're GM, you can go, well, we can either accelerate our process or we can pay $60 million in fines. If you're a small business, HIPAA is basically saying, if you're not willing to solve this problem before your 30 days are up, we really don't want you in the business of handling other people's PII. I kind of want to change the topic here a little bit. I mean, we've kind of gone. We could talk about Twilio. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you here, Greg? The, the security here is pretty interesting, but 
uh, on a lighter note, I mean, there are a lot of fun things you can do with the, the Twilio APIs, you know, outside of Authy. Uh, I'm curious, what, what are some of the interesting things that you've seen done with Twilio, Greg? Yeah, sure. There is a magician named Doug McKenzie. He's in New York. Uh, and we hear this kind of story often. Uh, he discovered Twilio and he taught himself to code in PHP so that he could incorporate Twilio into his magic tricks. Um, so if you Google Doug McKenzie, just go to his website, you'll find a, a couple of videos, one where he's doing magic for LeBron James. And, and there's a couple up there that are really good, but you'll see him do tricks, kind of the standard magic tricks you might think of where he has someone pick a card, but then they text a number and they get back a picture of the eight of clubs, right? Or he might do the thing where it's like, add your birthday, multiply by uh, you know, your phone, you know, last four digits, your phone, whatever it is, Texas number, and it sends you back your, your six digit super secret pen. And so he's amazing. He came, I'm not sure when this is going to air. It might air too late, but we have a developer conference going on in San Francisco, uh, May 24th and 25th. And we did it last year. It's called Signal. And he came and opened up, uh, the second day of the show for us and did this magic trick from the stage with 1500 people in the audience, uh, that involved the whole audience texting in this number that he had. And, uh, and it was pretty amazing. So, and he learned to code just so that he could do this. It was super cool. There's another guy who's, uh, May 24th and 25th. There's another guy named, uh, Ryan Leslie. He's a, uh, hip hop artist and producer. Uh, he built this thing called super phone. So he gives out his, uh, he gives out his phone number at every single concert he goes to every video. If you go to his Twitter, Ryan Leslie has 500,000 Twitter followers. You can text him. And it, he basically built a lightweight CMS so that he can have a direct connection. He says that he has 500,000 Twitter followers and 40,000 of them have texted him. And so then when you text him, like he sells all of his albums direct, he pulled all of his stuff out of iTunes. And so when he has a new album coming out, you know, he, he knows who bought his previous albums, who's attended his shows. If you text him and when we were coordinating with, um, to, to, he's coming to speak at the conference next month. And I just, sure enough, I just texted him, you know, like 11 o'clock at night. And 20 minutes later, this dude who's made music for Kanye, like text back. It's like, yeah, I'd love to be there. And it was amazing. So, um, so those are kind of some fun examples. Uh, we have a lot of social good that's happened. There's, um, some women here in Chicago, Rose and Guinevere. Uh, I know them. I worked with them. Emerleaf is amazing. Yeah. It's great. You want to, you want to say what they do? Um, they are basically a service in, Correct me if I get this wrong. Um, a lot of lower income people do not have access to desktop computers. They have access to the internet via their mobile phones. So what Emerleaf is doing is making it possible to see what social welfare programs you qualify for with a um, centralized phone interface. It's basically an SMS survey. You text this phone number and, and it, it runs you through a series of questions about your income and where you live and your family. And it will tell you what social programs in the city of Chicago you're available for. So things like education, you know, uh, before school and after school programs that are sponsored by the city, things like, you know, meal assistance, things like utility bill uh, reduction. Um, it, they have helped thousands of people who don't have an internet connection at home, maybe don't have a desktop computer, but these days just about everyone has a cell phone. And even if you don't have a smartphone, like the SMS app is the only app that's installed on every single phone, right? Like no matter if, if a lot of phones don't even get email, 
but they all can send and receive text messages. I wasn't um, aware of the SMS features that they had built out. That's really amazing. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's fantastic. They, they've done some really good. They're going to be speaking at Signal, too. And they've really helped the city in an incredible way. And they were graduates of, um, I believe, a starter league uh, here, which is a dev boot camp-like program. I mean, when they started working on this, they had been programming for months. You know, like they're not, you know, but they just saw this need that needed to be solved. And, and they figured out how to use text messaging to do it. As far as fun use cases, I'll, I'll give one more. Last year, I taught my dog how to text me selfies. Uh, I, I started. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I started playing her. Well, here, let me back up even further. We, our dog's two years old. A few weeks after we got her, I'm laying in bed, and we have this light next to our bed that is from IKEA. It has a, a floor switch on it. You just stomp on it to turn the light on and off. And I was like, man, I really shouldn't have to get out of bed to turn this light on and off. I have a dog, and so uh, we taught her how to run over, slap the, the switch and, and turn the light on and off. And then after that, I was like, all right, so I got this dog that can press a button. I wonder what else I could do with that. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I had just started to go wrong. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I had just started playing with the, uh, with hardware hacking really no experience with that. I got an Arduino Yune and which is a Arduino that also has a second chip on it. that runs a stripped down version of Linux. And then it also has, uh, Wi-Fi connectivity. And so I basically did the hello world of the Arduino world is blink. The hello world plus plus would be press a button and make it blink. And uh, this thing has a, a USB slot on it too. So I was able to plug in a uh, webcam. And so my dog runs up, presses the button, takes a picture of the webcam. And then uh, I did it originally in, in Python, but you can run Ruby on this thing too. Um, and then it, it just fires off a, a really quick script that takes the image file that's stored on the 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 chip and uh, uh, sends an MMS using Twilio to my phone. Uh, so my dog would run up, press, uh, and and text me selfies. Um, so I, I gave I was given a talk on that quite a bit last year too, and that was a lot of fun. So does your dog text you like every two minutes? If I gave her treats, she would. She I've kind of figured out she'll she'll do just about anything for a treat. Uh, <laughs> but if there's no treat involved, she tends to be not particularly interested. That's really interesting. I've trained my cat to lay around and sleep most of the day. Wow. That's, that's a that's lot of work. That's some advanced stuff right there. Yeah, she's really good at it. <laughs> I don't have to give her any treats either. Wow. She must be so proud. She's better behaved than my dog then. So I kind of want to dig into, there are a couple of other APIs that, I mean, we've talked about text messaging and phone calls, but what about the IP messaging and video chat? I mean, what, what exactly do, do those provide? Yeah, that's a great question. So Twilio's mission is not to send and receive text message, place and receive phone calls. Like Twilio's mission is to inspire and equip developers to change communications, like to change the way the world communicates. And obviously it doesn't take a whole lot of foresight to see that the world is moving heavily towards more IP based messaging as opposed to SMS. SMS is going to be around for quite some time, but the adoption we're finally starting to see just in the last couple of years starts slow and it's still it's still growing. Usage is still growing, but the adoption is not growing as quickly. And so you have WhatsApp, you have what I mean, Viber, uh, I don't know, you name WeChat is huge uh, in Asia. And all of these have a similar issue of like, say, Skype, for instance, right? So we've been able to have video chat for a really long time. Skype's been around for 10 plus years now. But in order for us to have the Skype call right now, I had to connect 
you know, I had to know your username. Uh, I had to actually update the Skype client. And in the last few years, there's a technology that was started by Google called WebRTC that allows peer-to-peer connections in the browser. And so you can do video calls directly in the browser. So now most of the time I use something called talkie.io, which is, you know, you just go to talkie.io slash bogus and whoever meets there joins into a video chat together, right? Um, what Twilio wants to do is on the video side is make it really easy for developers to embed video into their existing apps, right? And so instead of having to go to the standalone app, that you could just add video into the apps that you're already building um, and trying to do the same thing with chat. So most of the chat that happens over IP right now happens in these standalone apps. Um, and what we want to do is give developers the ability to add chat, which again, kind of like the two-factor authentication is more complicated than it typically, you know, initially seems at first glance. So you probably think at first, you know, if you've ever done a WebSockets tutorial, typically the hello world with WebSockets is building a quick chat. But productionized, productionalized, production, I don't know, production chat involves a lot more than just sending the message back and forth, right? Like you want to have identity management, you want to keep a chat history. Uh, often you're going to want to have typing indicators, uh, you'll have concepts of different channels. And then you also have cross-platform functionality. So you're typically going to want, if you think like a Slack, for instance, you're going to want people to be able to interact with the desktop client and interact with iOS and Android apps. And so both the video and the IP messaging are a series of a set of SDKs. So JavaScript SDK for everything that you would do in the browser and then iOS and Android SDKs so that you can use one set of SDKs to deploy chat and deploy video in the apps that you're already building and the languages that you're already working in. So again, that you can just have that infrastructure taken care of for you and then get back to deploying the features that you're already working on. That's interesting. And we've done episodes on JavaScript Jabber on WebRTC, if you want to dig into a little bit more on that technology. But it's it's really, really fascinating. There's some really cool stuff happening yep. in the WebRTC world. Yeah, JS RemoteConf also last year, not this year, but last year had a WebRTC talk and he showed off. Uh, he w- he talked to like three or four different devices in his house in different ways using WebRTC. Some of it was video, some of it was not, and it was really really interesting. So I'll put links to both of those in the show notes as well. One of the yeah. things I saw in the Twilio README that was really intriguing to me and is not really explained is TwyML. Can you talk about what in the world yeah. that is? Yeah, for sure. This is probably not the best named uh, thing that we've ever come up with. So it's... Uh, we is pronounce, it Twimmel? Yeah, we, we pronounce it Twimmel. So it's Twilio XML. So let's say that you signed up for a Twilio account right now. The first thing that you would probably do is to purchase a phone number. So a phone number will cost you a dollar a month. You can find it in just about any area code. And I don't know how many countries, probably, I don't know, 100 plus countries, that number is wrong. So I'm just going to be super general, but it's all over um, You can buy a number through the Twilio app, right? Or That's through correct. the Twilio API. And your documentation has you searching for a number with awesome in it. So can you actually search for phone numbers by word? Yes. Yes, you can. I've done it. It's so awesome. <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, you, you'll be hard pressed to get anything more than than three or four characters of your choice. It's not quite like domain names. We buy phone numbers in bulk from wherever the places that phone numbers are born, and then uh, you know, so we kind of have what we have, but we have a lot. And if you're looking for three or four letters together, you can typically find that. So, and let me actually step back just a second, and we'll talk a little bit about how Twilio itself works, the mechanics of it. When you then text that phone number or you place a call to that phone number, 
Twilio makes an HTTP response or HTTP request to your server somewhere. All right. And so it's just like you punched a domain name into a browser somewhere. And then an HTTP request is made to that server somewhere. It says, Hey, do you want, what do you want me to do? And that server returns back, you know, some mix that, you know, typically HTML is involved or is included in, in the payload that comes back. All right. So what happens here is that Twilio makes, makes an HTTP request to the endpoint that you have set up as your messaging or your voice endpoint. And what is it expecting in return is Twimmel, which is just basically our fancy way of saying Twilio XML. So it's XML that has a very specific uh, set of primitives that instruct Twilio what you would like it to do. So in the case of text message, the most common response is just going to be uh, you're going to see like an open response tag and then an open message tag. And then you'd have the body of the message that you want to respond with. And then you'd close the message tag, close the response tag. Um, and so in Ruby, for instance, whenever we do our we'll do a five minute demo where we just get up on stage, we'll buy a phone number and we'll typically like ask like someone in the audience, like, what's your area code? We'll buy a phone number and then just start with a blank Ruby file. And then in Sinatra, just write up a messaging webhook and then. You know, that just basically kicks out some XML. We'll have everyone in the audience text that, uh, and they'll all get a response right there. And then we'll make everyone's phones ring, uh, and like initiate a phone call to everyone who just texted in. If someone calls that number, you to set up another, re- uh, endpoint for that too. And then the Twimmel would look like, uh, it might do something like dial where it just forwards. So one of the use cases that people use Twilio for is, um, uh, I don't know, last year we were, we were considering buying a house. We didn't do it, but we were considering it. And so I went to like lendingtree.com and it asked for my info and I had a hunch as to what was going to happen there. And so I bought a Twilio phone number and I just set it up to forward to my cell phone and I gave them my Twilio number. And then once I was done, getting those offers, I just killed the forwarding. And there's an app called Burner App that uses Twilio to provide people for temporary phone numbers uh, if they're selling stuff on Craigslist or whatnot. And so or that's... Dating. Da- uh, dating. Actually, um, uh, eHarmony uses us for anonymous communication. So same with Airbnb and Uber. So when you're texting or calling you know, whoever's on the other side of that, let's just put in air quotes transaction, uh, whether it's eHarmony or, or Airbnb or, or Uber, it's passing through a Twilio number so that you can give out the number of the driver or the number of the other person that you're, you're meeting on eHarmony without actually giving out their personal number. And then once that, uh, that pairing has stopped, like once that ride is complete or whatever, that number then gets recycled for future transactions. So you're absolutely right. There's a huge, huge number of people who use this, use this for what we call anonymous communications or, um, also known as masked phone numbers. Uh, but to get back to your original question, Caroline, all of that is driven by Twimmel. It's all Twimmel is just the XML based instruction set by which you tell Twilio what you'd like to do with that text message or that phone call. So I have some questions about your tech stack, but before I get into that, I actually have a, a more of a like a business oriented question. You've talked about some of the really high profile uses of Twilio um, and also some of the particularly unique ones. But I'm curious, like, I don't know, it's one of those things where when I think about it, I think, oh, that's neat. Um, and I might think of a, a few to- toy ideas, but I rarely make the connection to like, oh, this is how I would use this to enhance my business. And I'm curious, are there like some common ways that, that developers ought to be thinking, oh, you know, this is a way that I could, I could enhance somebody's business or my own business using this, these technologies? Yeah, that's a really good question. And you're right. A lot of the 
use cases I've thrown out were either novel or they were businesses that didn't exist pre-internet. You know, it's like Uber or Airbnb or something. So how does Twilio apply to more established or, you know, what we think of as old school businesses? One of the ways that we're used most common is for what we call call tracking. And so if you think about, uh, I wrote a blog post on this last year and um, I used the example of Better Call Saul. Uh, I don't know if y'all uh, have watched the show or, or watched Breaking Bad or not. But if you watch Breaking Bad, the lawyer on there, his name is Saul Goodman. And he is no, he runs these television ads and he has these billboards and he has ads at bus stop. And it, it all say his tagline is you better call Saul, right? Like if you get in trouble, if you get arrested, whatever, you better call Saul. Prolific advertiser. Saul has a big problem though. He has no idea which methods of marketing or of advertising are yielding him the highest ROI. Right. Because when somebody calls his 800 number, he doesn't know if they saw it on a billboard, if they saw it on the bus stop or if they saw it on TV. And so what folks will use Twilio for is they will buy again for a dollar a month, a different phone number for every advertisement that they run. So you could run a phone number on your you know, different phone number on your Google ads as on your billboards, et cetera. And then when a call comes into that phone number before you would fire off that twimmel that says dial and connect this to our main phone number line. So everything will just pass right through to the receptionist uh, or whoever's answering the phones. Before you would do that, you would increment a counter somewhere. And that would either be, you know, your own proprietary database you set up or what we'll often see is Google Analytics because that's where you're often tracking a lot of your marketing and advertising data anyway. And so then you can pull up and you can see, all right, you know, the billboard cost us, I have no idea what billboards cost, but the billboard cost us $1,000 a month. And it generated from that phone number that's on the billboard and only on that billboard, 200 phone calls, you know, and our Google ad campaigns generated this much. And then it will help businesses then, whether they are internet or offline businesses, it will help them figure out where should they spend their next $100 of marketing. Uh, another spot we'll often see is appointment reminders. Uh, Patrick McKenzie, I don't know if he's been on the show before. He has. Uh, he has. Okay. Patrick's one of my favorite people in the world. Go check out the stuff he writes if you haven't heard of him or whatnot, but he's fantastic. He has a business called Appointment Reminder, which he more or less started because he discovered that Twilio was a thing. You know, he was one of our earliest customers. He is probably our best unpaid developer evangelist. Uh, he has just spread the word and, and has said so many nice things about us over time. He's also speaking at Signal and he spoken, spoke last year. Appointment reminder does exactly what you think it does. Uh, it sends out reminders for the appointments of doctors and massage therapists and dentists and plumbers. And, and that you basically just go to his site and, you know, the, they sign up and then they punch in your appointment and then you get a, a text message that says, you know, we're coming out tomorrow at this time, respond with one if you to confirm, respond with two if to cancel. And, uh, you know, when he was doing his uh, business, you know, customer validation early on, massage, you know, he went in and I believe his story is that he would go in and say, you know, do you take a walk-ins? They say yes. And he say, how much for an hour long massage? And they say 60 bucks. And he say, okay, how about instead of me giving you giving me a massage, I'll give you $60 and you let me interview you for an hour. And he's like, how... How painful is it when someone doesn't show up and they're like, well, it's just a lost 60 bucks. You know, like I don't get that time back. I can't schedule someone in that slot. And it's just, you know, one eighth of my revenue for the day that I lose. And so he built this thing and can demonstrate a, you know, quantifiable value. If one person shows up per month that would have canceled, 
then it pays for what you're paying me. And I don't know exactly what his pricing is, but uh, you know, it's a pretty easy to demonstrate the value proposition for that. Um, and one last thing I'll say is um, more generally speaking, email or like open rates for SMS are uh, well, here, let me say it. We started up a podcast uh, a few months ago and we had, it's called Twilio radio. And we interviewed the uh, Ben Stein who runs our messaging team. And I asked him, I said, uh, what are the open rates for SMS? And he said, all of them. Uh, right. And he's like, uh, you know, you don't really even open SMS. You just read them. Right. Versus I don't even know what the, the email rates are for, or the open rates are for emails, probably like 20% or, or so it would be good. It depends I'm guessing. on the list. Yeah, very, very true. Very, very true. And a good list can get 50% or more, but most don't. And that, that's just opens, not even like people reading or clicking. Yeah, or the call to action. So any business that needs to communicate with customers, SMS is a pretty good way to do that. Now, different messages are more appropriate for SMS versus email. And, and uh, you know, SMS is a very, it's perhaps the most intimate form of electronic communication that we have. So it needs to be used very appropriately, but it is a fantastic way to quickly communicate with customers. Nice. Nice. Those are, those are, those are great examples. Thank you. Oh, thanks for asking, Avi. All right. So I, I mentioned I was curious about your tech stack and I, I do want to ask about that. Um, what, what are you using inside Twilio and, uh, and more importantly, what are you liking? I'm going to give a disappointing answer. And that is to say that I don't touch the tech stack. And I don't want to, um, I, I do know that the front end of our site, so what you would touch if you hit up the documentation or um, if you were to hit the, the dashboard, that's run off of PHP. And I believe it, that was just what we started with eight years ago or so. Um, as far as the actual internals that are used to route traffic to, actually, I do know that we have a Python Flask app, which is, um, you can think uh, as being very similar to uh, Sinatra on the Ruby side, uh, Flask, is, is, they're very, very similar to each other. We have that that helps route traffic as it comes in the API to all the internal services. Uh, we are, and the reason I know that is because uh, we have a member of the API team giving a talk on that at Signal. And then we are heavy, heavy, heavy users of AWS. Everything's on AWS. Jeff Lawson, our CEO, is a former product manager at AWS. As far as the languages that are used to route the traffic to the carriers, I can't speak with any kind of uh, certainty to. Uh, so I, I will avoid giving wrong answers there. Magical gnomes, in other words. Mag <laughs> mag magical gnomes, yeah. yeah. Uh, carrier pigeons, mostly. <laughs> so I have another question uh, related to this. Uh, my first project as a professional developer, so this is when I actually had the title developer, in my job, we were actually building a system that connected with the phone gateways and, you know, sent text messages to people. And I'm not going to get into everything that the app did, but there were a lot of rules we had to follow. So the carriers have different codes that you have to be able to send in, like quit or stop in order to stop getting text messages or, you know, other. There were a couple of other ones. I don't remember what they all were. Uh, does Twilio just handle that all for you automatically? Yeah. So the best practice is that you also implement it, but we do handle that. So if you text STOP in all caps to a Twilio phone number, you will no longer get text messages from that phone number. If you text a START back to that number, then it opens up the pathway again back to you. We'll still send a notification to your app that that came through. So you should also, as the developer, 
be looking for that and then unsubscribe them from your list and update your database accordingly. But if somebody finds out that, you know, if you're out there, um, we actually launched a new product last year called Lookup, which is super fun to play with. Just go to twilio.com slash lookup and you can punch a phone number in there and it will tell you if it's a mobile or a landline. Um, it will tell you the carrier that it's on. And then we just a few weeks ago launched, uh, you can pull up caller ID information from there as well. Uh, then there's also an API for it. So one of the, the big use cases for that is uh, phone number validation. So if somebody punches, say, a phone number into your form, you can uh, validate is that uh, A, is it properly formatted? B, is it a, a legit number? Um, and then C, like, is it a landline or is it a uh, a cell phone that can receive text messages. And based on that, you, you know, you would decide how you're going to communicate, how your app's going to communicate with them. But, uh, one of the reasons I mentioned that is that one of my favorite games these days is whenever I'm out and about, you know, I'm in the subway and I see like a, uh, an advertisement for some new on demand service or whatever that has a phone number on there. And I, I go, I punch it in the lookup and I see that it's a Twilio number. Um, and that's always uh, uh, very encouraging, and a lot of fun to see. If you ever do that and you're getting texts that you would prefer not to get, go look and see if it's a Twilio number. If you text stop, then you will uh, stop getting text messages from there. Even uh, if the developer has up, an that. Sorry, go ahead. You brought up uh, lookups, uh, which reminded me, uh, I was asking a coworker of mine um, if there was anything that... Uh, they might like to ask somebody from Twilio. Uh, we actually use Twilio in uh, one of our apps to send uh, text messages back and forth to our customers' customers. And um, apparently, uh, I don't use it my like I didn't write most of this code myself, but uh, apparently the lookups feature has a different API endpoint and maybe a different client library. And it seems like there's maybe a really interesting organizational story behind that. I wonder if you can speak to that at all. Behind the the lookups. When something comes out in a you know a different endpoint and with different client libraries, right. that tells me that maybe there's a different like sure. tiger team working on it or something like that. No, it's that's a very insightful question, and I think that it speaks to the evolution of Twilio over time, right? So when Twilio first started eight years ago, uh, and I wasn't around, I just started two years ago. I believe all we did was voice, so you could place and receive phone calls programmatically. Uh, a couple years after that, we added SMS. And um, this is all a RESTful API, and it was all the same API. Over time, we've added more and more products. And you can imagine that as you add more and more features to a set, then that means more teams working on uh, a shared code base. Uh, it means documentation gets really tough. It means that even the dashboard that users interact with, um, which if you visited our, the, if you signed in your Twilio account and visit your dashboard about two weeks ago, it was a mess. And, and it had been that way for a little while um, because we had this dashboard that had more or less started, you know, six, seven years ago. And then we added features and features and features to it, which is great, but then it got more and more complicated. And so what, one of the big things that Twilio has been doing over the last year is starting an unbundling process. So there are customers who will use something. So it's called SIP. And so you can imagine you could use SIP to run Twilio to power the phone that's on your desk. But if you're just doing that, you don't need a lot of the advanced Twilio functionalities, right? Like, so you don't need all the stuff that Twimmel offers you. You might not need to record phone calls. Um, 
Um, you might not need to uh, be able to also send and receive text messages from that phone, but we were still charging you as if you did. Um, and then, and you can kind of imagine how that goes through a lot of stuff. There's certain customers that need certain features. They don't need everything. And so one of the things Twilio has been doing is unbundling a lot of our services from one another. And I think lookup is probably one of the first things that you've seen along those lines where it is no longer going to the same restful, you know, the same API that sending and receiving text messages was coming from. And then similar stuff's happening with uh, Twilio IP messaging with Twilio video. And and you'll see more and more of that. So that's, that's a really, really, again, that's a very insightful question. And, and the general answer is unbundling. Greg, I have a, cool, thanks. I have a, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, like we, we spent some time um, talking about developer career paths and um, a lot of developers, of course, end up in management. A lot of um, developers end up in sort of a guru or mentor role. And you have ended up in a developer evangelist role. So I'm really curious about how you got there and if you miss coding. That's a, that's a really great question. Chuck and I had briefly discussed maybe coming back and talking more about evangelism in a different episode because it's a huge topic. First and foremost, I still get to do a ton of coding. So Twilio is a highly technical product. It's, uh, you know, we call it an invisible product. It's an API. If we as developer evangelists, and there's about a dozen of us on our team, don't maintain technical credibility, then we can't serve this community. Um, so if I'm at a hackathon and I haven't written code with the API recently, then I can't help that developer build their app in 24 hours. Like I can't go to 1871, the big co-working space here in Chicago and help our customers, the startups there and like sit down with them and work on that. So what I don't code obviously as much, I do 20, 30% of my time is coding now. Um, and it tends to be on a lot of smaller projects as opposed to diving deep into one code base. What I do get to do though, is work across a bunch of different languages. So in the last two years, I've been able to write, like I came into this job as mostly a Rubyist who had done PHP five years, you know, for quite a while, but hadn't really written PHP for five years. And in the last two years, I, I've published blog posts or written code on stage in Ruby, Python, PHP, I was doing the Android stuff. I've started playing with Android do quite a bit of JavaScript. And so it's given me great exposure to a lot of different languages. And the last hackathon I was at, I got to actually in 24 hours help debug apps that were written in each one of those languages as well. Um, and so that part has just been fantastic. I would say that my breadth of programming knowledge has expanded, but I probably do sacrifice a little bit of depth. All of the developer evangelists on our team have come from some sort of developer background where they have great depth. And so just about everyone has worked as a professional engineer before. And that's just by nature of the fact that Twilio is a highly technical product. There's certainly developer evangelists for other products out there who don't need to be as technically competent in order to service the developers there. But it just happens to be so for Twilio. And thanks for asking the question. It's I love talking about this stuff. And I will just say, if you enjoy writing, if you enjoy speaking, and you enjoy coding, developer evangelism you know, for the right people is just a fantastic job. Um, and I'm always happy to, to chat about it. I, I really do believe that I stumbled upon what's the best possible job that I could have. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to the picks. But before we do, there's something that Avdi wanted to uh, say to our listeners. Hey, so um, five years ago when the Ruby Rogue started, um, I was so excited because it was the podcast about Ruby that I wanted to listen to. And so I was so ex excited that it existed. And when I was first asked to come on, I was even more excited 
And um, when I was asked to join, it was it was a dream come true. I was over the moon, and it's been wonderful. But all good things must come to an end, and I've I've realized lately that it's time for me to to pour my time into other things. Um, and so, so this is me saying goodbye uh, for now. At least I'm I'm retiring from the Rogues. Hopefully, I will you know be back from time to time. And I just want to say uh, it's been fantastic. All of the current and former panelists are not just my co-panelists, but they have become my friends. And there's, I've been just thrilled with the wonderful community that's come together around this show. Um, so thank you, everyone who's who's listened. Um, and thank you, Chuck, uh, for putting this together through all these years. And um, that's about it. Um, if folks want to want to keep up with with my doings um as i've mentioned a few times on the show um i do have a, a sort of a newsletter that i publish from time to time and you can find that at sigavd.email um and you know i'm out there on the on the internet um but bye everyone thank you so much abdi you're gonna be sorely missed yeah yes thank I you got- very much i've learned so much from you on this podcast over the years oh thank you we kept trying to put that off but uh it had to happen i guess Avdi, I just want to echo that too. I guess uh, perhaps as the uh, representative of the listeners who is on this right now, like when I was getting into to Ruby, I guess five years or so ago, um, I, I just learned so much from you, and I've always and it was like a total pleasure to be able to meet you at some conferences later on. And you're just so calm. You do such a great job of, of presenting complex technical topics in a way that's humble and and just very accessible. And and it was you were a real like inspiration for me, and I'm sure you know, thousands of other people as they got into this language. And I, I think just an awesome representative of the Ruby community as a whole too. Um, and so thanks for, thanks for your great service to the community there. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up before we went to picks is as you may have noticed, Saran has not been on for a while. Uh, she's just been really busy with her job and with code newbie, which she actually does on the weekend. Crazy enough. So, uh, we're looking for kind of that new person voice to also come join the show. Uh, we're going to do something very similar to what we did about, what, three years ago, four years ago. It's going to be, I guess, Ruby newbie number two. If you are a new or newish programmer to Ruby, or a new or newish programmer, I should say, and you're learning Ruby, then what we would like you to do is put together a YouTube video telling us about yourself and uh, explaining why you would like to be on the show. And uh, there will be more details up at rubyrogues.com slash ruby-newbie. And I will put every spelling of newbie I can think of in there so that you can just get it. But yeah, put the YouTube video together and then post a link in the comments. And we will do what we can to review those. And then we'll probably do another episode, bring some people on to talk, and then probably select somebody from that group to join us and kind of help us have the perspective of somebody who's coming to this brand new. That is an awesome idea. And with that, I guess we'll get to the picks. Avdi, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. So this is something I may have picked before, but it's been on my mind lately, and I just wrote a blog post about it. There's this very old, well, old in terms of of our profession anyway, uh, paper that Ward Cunningham wrote called The Checks Pattern Language of Information Integrity. And it's it's basically a, pa- a pattern um, with a lot of a lot of experience and deep thought about dealing with user input in a humane way and a sane way, and it gets into a lot of subtleties that people don't often think about. 
when they first start to take user input. Um, and it's particularly if you are, if you're dealing with user input and you're thinking about validation, I think there's some really important concepts in this paper. So it's, it's very worth going back and, and looking it up and reading it through maybe once or twice. I think it, it can help your, uh, help your programs. The other thing I'll pick is probably also something I've picked before, but it's also been on my mind lately, which is delegation. Um, it's not, not a particular thing, but just the concept of delegation. Um, I, I've found again and again that it's true that when you, you think that the things that you do, nobody else could possibly do them and you could never possibly, you could never delegate them. You're always wrong and you're always limiting yourself by thinking that way. And, uh, I, I, it's not something that I, I can just learn once I'll, I'll learn it once and I'll delegate some things and then I'll move on and, and, and find new things that I think that only one person can do. And then, it, and realize that I'm limiting myself that way. And I think as, a, as programmers, we have a, a, an extra special block to this because not only do we think, oh, I'm the only person that can do this, but if we think that maybe, you know, maybe I, I shouldn't be doing this, this repetitive task all the time. The next thing we think is, oh, I'll automate this with a script. Um, or with a program and then we sink, you know, we sink a, a few days of frenzied effort into it and realize that it's more complicated than we realize and it's not worth the effort. And then we give up and, and we go back to doing it manually. So, uh, yeah, there's stuff in your life that you could delegate. Look for it, expand and, and then expand, uh, what you're doing in the, in the free time that you, that you free up. That's it. All right. David, what are your picks? I've just got, uh, one today. People have been pinging me on Twitter saying, when are you going to do another hot sauce pick? And so I have one. Uh, while I was out in Ohio doing uh, my on-site with Cover My Meds, I walked by a K. John's Fiery Foods uh, store, and I did not know who K. John was, and I feel embarrassed about this because he's one of the inaugural inductees into the Hot Sauce Hall of Fame, which just started last year. But he's he's one of the most award-winning uh, hot sauce makers uh, in the world. So he's, uh, yeah, the, it's really, really good. When I say K John, it's, it's spelled like Cajun, but with John J O H N. So C A J O H N. I'll put a link in the show notes. The, the sauce that I actually got three and I'm actually afraid to open, open the other two. So when I build up my nerve, uh, I will have some more hot sauce, uh, picks, but for now, the first one and the coolest one of the three is called ignite hot sauce and it's got red Savina habanero chilies, which was the hottest chili pepper in the world until 2006 when the ghost pepper came along. By the way, if anybody's keeping track listening to the show, the ghost pepper is not the hottest pepper in the world. Uh, hasn't been for about four years. There's a new kid on the block that's over two times hotter than ghost peppers out there called the Carolina Reaper. And no, I'm not trying one of those anytime soon. But the, the Ignite sauce is diluted down until it's hotter than jalapenos, but it's definitely, I can't find a Scoville rating for it. I would say it's probably between 15,000 and 45,000 Scovilles. So the extract sauces start at about 100. And the interesting thing is when you take red savinas, which are about half a million Scovilles, when you dilute them down, you don't get a cool sauce. What you get is a, or you don't get a warm sauce. What you get is a very cool sauce that's flavorful, that has these bright little pinpricks of intense heat that, that just flash and then kind of go away. And so 
this is a really, really good sauce. I've tried it out in soups and in tacos, and you can use it by the drop in a soup, and it uh, doesn't change the flavor very much. It does has, have lemon and garlic in it, so you want to use it in salty foods. And you can, if you're brave, uh, use it as a, quote, table sauce, unquote, what they say. And uh, I just tried dripping it on a taco yesterday for the first time, and... Uh, it's quite the ride. It's uh, absolutely fantastic, and I'm probably heading back into another bout of hot sauce addiction <laughs> as a result. So this this will get the endorphins going. So ignite hot sauce from K John's uh, Fiery Foods, now and that's my whole pick. All right, Coraline, what are your picks? So like a lot of developers, I listen to music while I code, and the music I listen to, I think in a way, in a subtle way, influences the code that I'm writing. And I have music for when I'm being contemplative and music when I'm trying to be productive and so on. So I have a couple of music picks. Um, the first is a band called Beach House. Um, I hate the name. They're an American dream pop band from Baltimore. Um, only two members, vocalist and organist Victoria Legrand and guitarist Alex Scaly. Legrand's vocal style is reminiscent of Nico. You probably heard Nico with Velvet Underground. Influences include Dismortal Coil and Cocteau Twins. So it's very dreamy, very backgroundy. Um, you can listen to it and it's not going to distract you from what you're doing. And, um, their most recent release is Thank Your Lucky Stars. It was released last year and it's really, really good. My second pick is another duo, this time sisters Bianca and Sierra Cassidy, and their band is called Coco Rosie. They're best described as new weird American or sometimes called freak folk. Freak folk is a genre of folk music which uses acoustic instrumentation but introduces elements of avant-garde music, baroque pop, and psychedelic folk, often featuring uncommon sounds, strange lyrical themes, and unusual vocal styles. So Coco Rosie incorporates elements of pop, opera, electronica, and hip-hop into their music. They typically release a new album every two or three years. I got familiar with them from their 2004 recording Noah's Ark, which is a classic, but Heartache City, which was released this November, is also very good. So Beach House and Coco Rosie for your coding music pleasure all right sam what are your picks i just have one today and it's uh also a music pick i guess it's actually more like a pick and a half so you might not guess this if uh, you ran into me just at a conference wearing you know the usual jeans and t-shirt but uh, my musical tastes run uh, a little bit goth uh, when i was 18 uh, a friend of mine gave me a tape by the sisters of mercy and i loved it instantly yeah um, and i was treated right they're great and I was tweeting about them, uh, the band and the friend, uh, recently. And uh, later I noticed that my tweet had been favorited by an account with an unusual name, which is how I learned of the existence of the Misters of Circe, uh, who describe themselves as a gender non-conforming Sisters of Mercy tribute band. Now, so they're in London and I'm in Oregon, and I'll never probably actually see them perform. But just knowing that such a thing exists just brings me joy. And uh, that's my pick. All right. I've got a couple of picks here. Some people may be uh, surprised to hear that uh, the last few weeks I have been spending a little bit more time in the code. I have been working in WordPress and PHP. And the reason is, is that... That doesn't count. <laughs> I know, right? So I went to MicroConf and I went to... Uh, I, I had a code or a retreat, not a code retreat, a retreat with my mastermind group. Uh, you can listen to us on entreprogrammers.com. We actually release our meetings as two to two and a half hour <laughs> podcast episodes. But anyway, while I was down there, Derek Bailey, who does watchmecode.com or .net, sorry, if you're into JavaScript, go check that out. He talked me into having a look at WordPress again. I kind of given up on it. And uh, it turns out that 
I can actually do most of what I want to do in WordPress, and it will save me a whole bunch of time and effort getting what I want on devchat.tv by switching back over to WordPress and then having uh, some customizations done as opposed to doing a whole bunch of custom Rails work. So I've been working on switching it back. So I've got some picks related to that. The first one is desktop server. If you want to have an XAMP stack, uh, XB and Mac OS set up, then desktop server just does it for you. And so you can get a WordPress site if you're doing any kind of WordPress development setup pretty quickly there. A few other picks that I'm just going to throw in here. Uh, advanced custom fields. If you want to add fields to your posts in WordPress, it's very handy. I also imported a whole bunch of stuff and had to convert different custom post types. And there is a plugin called Convert Post Types that's also very handy. And then just a few other things that I'm using to get the work done. One is Gravity Forms and the other is MemberPress. And I'm really, really liking those. They're doing a lot in the in the way of uh, collecting feedback. I'm hoping to be able to use that to collect more feedback uh, more regularly from the website and get a whole lot more input on what we're doing. I'm also setting up a more streamlined or regimented both kind of way of getting show recommendations and turning those into episodes. So working on that as well. I had a long talk with Kai Davis, who incidentally I'm talking to in about five minutes on the freelancer show. But yeah, so a lot there. Uh, member Press is member access, and it's pretty awesome as well. So uh, lots of picks. I'll have links to those in the show notes if you're doing WordPress stuff or have a WordPress site. And yeah. Chuck, as a developer, aren't you obligated to write your own CMS? Uh, that's what I actually have been doing for the last year and a half. Okay, you get to hold on to your credentials then. And it's anyway, it's just turned out that I was able to replicate in about a week to two weeks worth of full-time work spread over about four weeks, but I was able to replicate uh, what we did in a year in about a week and a half by customizing WordPress. So if that's the kind of productivity I can get out of it, then I, uh, I feel like I have to switch back so that I can spend more time doing the show stuff and less time doing the flailing about doing development stuff for the shows, if that makes sense. Greg, what are your picks? Uh, first pick, Bit of a plug. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're putting on a conference. It's called Signal. It's May 24th and 25th out in San Francisco. Uh, we're going to have about 2,000 developers there. Uh, we're going to have over 100 speakers. It's all about the future communication. So if you are currently a Twilio customer, a Twilio developer, we're going to have a bunch of folks from the Twilio, you know, developers who make Twilio talking about Twilio best practices. Uh, we have folks come and talk about uh, WebRTC. We've got people coming and talking about bots, which if you've opened up Hacker News in the last couple months, you've undoubtedly seen a bunch of stuff about bots. It seems to be one of the hottest, you know, hot, I hate that word, hottest, but um, one of the most popular topics these days in, in the tech world. So it's going to be awesome. We had it last year and it was just a ton of fun and would love to have you there. I'll set up a promo code, punch in rogues100 when you register and we'll give you a hundred bucks off the registration there. And if you want to hear some of the speakers, you can check out the podcast Twilio Radio. Um, we interviewed a bunch of the speakers who are going to be speaking there. Uh, second pick would be uh, Open Sourcing Mental Illness uh, by Ed Finkler. If you all have listened to my talk or are interested in, in you know depression, mental health uh, amongst the tech community, check out it's uh, osmihelp.org. Ed gives a fantastic talk and has been doing it uh, longer than I have um, about you know how mental illness affects the tech community. His site has a ton of resources 
for both employers and uh, developers. Uh, he runs a, a survey every year and you can see the results there. But Ed is just a fantastic guy. He goes by Funkatron on the Twitter. Uh, and then real quick, I started watching the TV show Billions a couple nights ago. Uh, if you have Amazon Prime, you can get a 30-day free trial of the Showtime stuff, and which is what I'm doing to watch it. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to get through all 12 episodes pretty quickly. It's been a lot of fun. And that's it. All right, Greg, if people want to follow up with you, see what else you're working on, know what Twilio is up to, what do they do? Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, you can find me uh, at Greggy B on Twitter, G-R-E-G-G-Y-B. Um, you can find Twilio at Twilio everywhere. Uh, and I'm also GB at Twilio.com. And uh, you can email me anytime. Uh, and then I have a newsletter, devsanddepression.com, where I send out some stuff about uh, mental health. All right. Sounds good. We'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you all for coming and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor. 